this has been the most political I've ever been in my life is is over the past year and a half or so. And are we experiencing a slow motion coup? Yeah, I, I, I definitely want to give you the ability to kind of freak us all out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Happy to do it. <laughs> yeah. Sanu Dazwa, which is welcome in Hausa. Who knew? I definitely did not know. I'm learning some new little tidbits of different languages through this podcast. For those of you who are like, what in the world is going on? For those of you who are first-time listeners or have not heard my description of why that happens, I made it a thing for the podcast to always welcome everybody in in a different language. So Hausa ended up be the, being the language of choice today for this episode with Stephen A. Cook. I am Tim Wheaton. I am the founder and podcast host of the Daddy Unscripted podcast. Welcome. I'm so glad to have you all listening today. This is the second episode with Stephen A. Cook. Again, he is the Eni Enrico Matei Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is also an author of multiple books, and he has a new one called False Dawn, which is going to be coming out a little bit later this year, pre-order in May and official book release coming in June. And he also has his own podcast that is called The Amen Corner. That's A-M-E-N, which he does with his friend Brad. And they muse on politics and Van Halen and Yankees baseball and all kinds of things. Um, very fun podcast. So you can give that a listen as well. In this first episode with Stephen, we talked about a lot of things, parenting and his dad and uh, legacy of our both of our dads and how that affected us and how it continues to affect us. And in this episode, we went more into what his background and schooling and uh, occupation is. And we talked a lot of politics and I may have lowered myself on the politic ladder when I told him a little bit later on in this episode that if he was at level 100, I was at level four. But I really am not a an extremely political fellow. I am very interested in them. I think when I got most interested in politics previously was maybe during uh, 9-11, but... I'm, I've become a lot more interested in the course of the most recent election and in the events that have been taking place since the time of the instatement of uh, the new president. So I wanted to talk about those things with Stephen and get his input, not only on how things are going here in our own country, but how the world's politics influence that and uh, what signs he may have seen in other countries' political uh, downfalls or um, different things that have happened with some of the countries that he has been involved in. So this is a, was a very educational conversation for me, and I got a lot out of it. And uh, I am releasing it here for all of you to hopefully get some maybe new perspective, uh, get a little bit more 
education behind your own perspective and um, to maybe give us a little, I don't know, light at the end of the tunnel or, you know, shed light on some of the things that are currently going on. Yes, clearly and obviously, I did not vote for Trump. I am sorry. I don't hate you if you did. I did not delete all of my friends on Facebook who voted for Trump. Uh, I did not kind of go to that extreme with people. I still very much love my friends who, who did not vote the way I voted. I didn't fall into that whole side of it with social media, with, you know, I've talked about this before, with all of the Facebook arguments that happened with so many people I know, with family members and good friends and people that they were just astonished had these opinions and um, these different beliefs. And I, I, I just, I still love these people. We can agree to disagree on a great many things. And I am not on the other side of that. I'm not dissing you people who did. You may have learned some very scary things about people that you love. And they may have truly damaged your relationship. And I get that. And there also are many people who just hid people because they didn't want to see all the political stuff all day long. Um, I don't spend a ton of time on Facebook. So maybe that also helped my situation. But with Stephen, I really wanted to kind of get a lot of that much more well-informed conversation out there uh, for myself and for maybe some of you as well. So I believe this kind of, it's kind of a jagged cut here because I had planned on our episode just being one episode from the get-go, but we ended up talking for a lot longer than I planned. So we will kind of jump right into the conversation where it seems to have made the most sense for me to cut it. So without further ado, here is myself and Stephen A. Cook. Okay, so let's tie it back to because you started to kind of touch on your politics and your podcast uh, with Brad. So what does it mean that you are this senior fellow for... Uh, Middle East and Africa studies. Uh, what does it mean? First of all, let me just say that the the podcast that I do, the the Amen Corner, has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with my work at the Council on Foreign Relations. There's no tie-in. Uh, they have not signed off there, on it. There's not. There's nothing. I haven't actually even mentioned the Council on Foreign Relations on the podcast. And one of the pictures that Brad originally wanted to use for our, for you know promotional purposes has the two of us standing. At the Council on Foreign Relations, Brad is a um, a documentary filmmaker, and he oh. made a very interesting film about um, African migrants seeking refuge in Israel. And we actually screened it at CFR and did a whole discussion about it. And there's a picture of us in front of something that says the Council on Foreign Relations, and it's a great picture of the two mm-hmm. of us. And he said, "How about using this?" I said, "Absolutely not." <laughs> We may not use that. He's like, oh, right. I get it. I get it. So the podcast is really me, is us blowing off steam and, and talking about right. life and so on and so forth. And it's a real fun for us. And the, my work at the Council on Foreign Relations, first, let me just say, um, and this is not just to make up for the podcast. I am truly privileged to to work and it's to work there. And it's an opportunity. I'm one of these people who's blessed with the fact that I, I whistle off to work every, every day. And, and my job is 
I'm essentially a university professor, but I don't teach classes. Although I do teach a class at, um, on Middle East politics at American University. I write books and, and articles about the Middle East that appear in the media, done, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the gamut of the, of the programs that, you know, people can think of. And it's, I don't, you know, I have friends who make 10 times the amount of money that I make, although I'm counsel very generous, but I can't help but think that I have just an incredibly interesting life that I'm not lacking for anything. And I have the counsel to, to, to thank for that. And, um, again, I think it's a privilege. I, you know, this, I, as I mentioned, I, I have a book that's coming out in a couple of months, which is about the Middle East and how we've gotten to this moment after the explosion of, and that's probably the wrong words early, uh, the incredible demonstrations of, of people power throughout the region and the hope that it instilled in people and for new, more open, democratic societies where people would live in, with more dignity and, and how we've gotten to this, this moment of bloodshed, uncertainty, and instability. It is constantly fascinating to me what is going on in the Middle East and understanding how the world works. And that's my, my endeavor um, and my kind of radical intellectual endeavor is to be the skunk at the party, um, especially in Washington. There's always conventional wisdoms that come from somewhere. And I think one of the secrets is, is not enough people in Washington read. So they read something somewhere in a column by a, you know, well-known columnist. And it sounds like a good idea and it becomes a, becomes an idea. The goals of the Council on Foreign Relations, and there's a lot of stuff that's out there about CFR. It's a, if you look at kind of conspiracy theorizing websites, people believe that, you know, we're the shadow government and controlling mm -hmm. nothing obviously could be further from the truth. But one of the things that we try to do is to offer our expert advice to the U S government on the best way to pursue American foreign policy and to secure American interests around the world. And it's also to educate the public and to, we have a, a broad program for um, college professors and high school students. And we're a publisher. We publish foreign affairs magazine. So it's a, it's a big enterprise and it's all geared towards improving uh, America's way in the world and um, offering our, our best advice, but none of it is secret. All of it is open. It's strictly nonpartisan and that's exactly where I want to be. I have my own political views. And if people want to understand what my political views are, they shouldn't read my latest article on Turkish politics, but they should go listen to the Amen Corner of my podcast, which is separate from CFR. Um, you know, you got to play it straight and in a nonpartisan way when you're doing serious analysis um, versus what I think when I'm, you know, sitting around with my buddy Brad and we're just kind of musing and ranting about the the state of the the country and the yeah. world and and so now with the council and with regards to its assistance with the u.s government is there a complete shift with your availability to properly disperse that information to the new householder <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah 
Well, let me let me also let, let me also be clear that you know CFR doesn't have any connection to the U.S. government whatsoever. We our bylaws state that we can't take money from the U.S. government, and and the way it's worked, the way in which we have sought to influence policy is through a number of ways. First is the dissemination of our written work and how to get it into the to the right hands, and then we. It, it and then it often works in an informal kind of way. Um, my formative experience in Washington at the council has been during the Obama administration, and you know, often someone from the National Security Council, the State Department, would say, "Hey, do you want to go? I know you were just in Egypt. Uh, you want to go grab coffee? I'd love to hear your perspective on things. I haven't been able to get out there in six months because I'm buried here." let us know. Let's grab, let's grab coffee. And there's a, there's a, there's a Pete's coffee place literally on the corner, catty corner from the white house. Mm-hmm. That's a meeting place. And there's an old time coffee place called swings coffee, where if you walk in at three 30 in the afternoon, you see all these bleary eyed white house staffers, you know, re re recaffeinating be like, Hey man, how's it going? Like, Oh, I really want to talk to you about blah, blah, blah. And then there's some, you know, more formal things. Um, I think that's a very healthy when, the professional bureaucracy and political appointees need to get external checks and they'll invite small groups of, of folks like myself from, you know, think tank land, or as the former president Obama's one of his key aides, uh, Ben Rhodes called it the blob, Mm -hmm. um, members of the blob to come in and, and offer our, our views on a, a variety of things. And, and that, I think it's very healthy. It happened, uh, Fairly frequently during the Obama years, spent some time in conference rooms at the, you know, where the National Security Council is housed in the what's called the Eisenhower Executive Office building or going over to the State Department for small roundtables, which is it's pretty, pretty cool. Um, It's really, really interesting. I, I think a highlight of one of those was around the time Hosni Mubarak fell. I had the opportunity with four other foreign policy think tank experts to um, sit down and have a conversation with, with Secretary Hillary Clinton and, and offer our views on, on what was going on. So it's done in that in, in both an informal and, and, and formal kind of way. Um, and thus far, at least I have not, um, I haven't been asked, no one's called me from the Trump National Security Council and said, hey, want to grab, want to grab coffee? Yeah. Um, let's talk about things. I haven't heard from the State Department. Maybe that will come. Uh, things are are chaotic right now. Um, yeah, seems like they're doing a couple of th- other things right now. <laughs> right, exactly. There's there's nobody at the kind of deputy levels. There's been turmoil at the National Security Council. Um, I actually had written a piece about the new senior director for the Middle East um, at the National Security Council looking at what he's written in the past, trying to get some insight into what his thinking might be going forward. He's not well known outside the kind of Iraq, Afghanistan, military, military intelligence Mm -hmm. world, which is something that's different. You've had political appointees in those positions before who were, you know, known in the kind of foreign policy circuits and so on and so forth, well-respected people, so this is it's an entirely new environment. I think, you know, to put it diplomatically, there's a lot of adjustment that's going on in Washington. right Yeah. Now. yeah. And is there I'm, I I talked with you before we started recording about one of your recent blog posts and it, it, it almost becomes one of those things where when I'm thinking about 
all of the things that they are doing and the clarity side of the discussion of there's a potential for creating chaos to be able mm-hmm. to gain control in a different way through that. I mean, is there yeah. is there something to that right now? And is that something that has been well, I'll let you I'll let you kind of go into everything instead of me asking sure. questions and sounding. No, super it's a, it's a, no, no, not at all. Not at all. I think it's uh, and I'm glad the the post, which was actually um, originally um, published with Salon.com, where I have a, a kind of regular a regular writing gig, was things that have been happening in the United States over the course of the last five or six weeks were striking to me because I noticed similar political patterns to the countries of the Middle East that I study, notably Egypt and Turkey. Um, I've spent, you know, 20, now 25 years studying the Middle East, and I've developed a particular interest in Egyptian and Turkish politics. And some of the things that have happened in the country particularly around the executive order that banned people from predominantly seven, seven predominantly Muslim countries are, were absolutely uh, parallel to me. Not that other countries are banning, but the, the circumstances around it, the seeming politicization of police forces in the country. Then there is, as you, you alluded to, a seemingly purposeful effort to sow chaos. We've had this kind of explosion of organizing and protesting and and daily kinds of things. And I think when you listen very carefully to what the president's senior policy advisor, Stephen Bannon, talks about, he wants to sow this kind of instability. He wants to tire people out so that as President Trump's presidency continues, they can pursue their agenda with less uh, resistance. And I saw the same kind of thing happen in Egypt. In Egypt, in the post-uprising period, it was less about, it was less a plan. It was more a function of the incompetence of the military officers that were running the country. But they, in their own way, exhausted people who were protesting and laid the groundwork for the resurgent authoritarianism that you see in Egypt today. Um, The attacks on the press that the president and his advisors have engaged in are absolutely reminiscent. I mean, they could not even reminiscent. They could have been spoken by Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who is an authoritarian and clear, very clearly has an authoritarian worldview. This is someone who's locked up 200,000 people in the last six months or so. Um, I don't believe that there's going to be a, a purge like that here in the United States, but that there are at a level of abstractions, some parallels to what's happened in the Middle East and what is happening now in uh, in the United States. I, I just published a piece, not in Salon, but in foreignpolicy.com talking about the deep state. The deep state is this idea that grows out of Turkey uh, about a secret cabal of military officers, intelligence officers, parliamentarians, academics, journalists, the criminal underworld, if that's what you call it, the mafia, that collude to thwart the will of the people to ensure um, their interests and the and 
which they equate with the secular republic in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And this has manifested itself in, in violence and in coups and in military interventions and so on. And there's a similar discussion in Egypt about uh, a deep state and how the deep state undermined the, the brief presidency of Mohamed Morsi, this Muslim brother who had been the president for a year. And was there an American deep state? This is something that has popped up in both left-wing and right-wing political uh, you know, uh, outlets, new, news outlets, and news, if you want to call them that. And what I was saying was that there's really scant evidence of this in, in, in the United States, but there's something that runs very similar to Egypt and Turkey is that people here in the United States who can't make sense of an extraordinarily complicated situation, who find chaos around them, who are, have difficult processing it, who don't have information, fall back on conspiracy. And that's why for both the, the left and right wings in this country, there is a fear of uh, a deep state that is manipulating things, whether it's a slow motion coup, Steve Bannon and, 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 and his people basically undermining the democratic institutions of the country and taking it over. Or for the right, um, the right wing professional bureaucracy, the CIA, the FBI, the judiciary colluding with the press to undermine the Trump presidency. And because people don't have information and they can't make sense of this very kind of chaotic moment and unstable moment, it's hard to say that about the United States, but there is a certain amount of political uncertainty and instability that people have fallen back and that this idea of the deep state has, has emerged. Yeah. So it's very interesting at this moment to be uh, a Middle East analyst because you can then apply it to your own country. I, I actually, I received an email from a, a diplomat from a, from a Middle Eastern country who I've become friendly with over the years. It said to me, did you ever imagine you would be writing, when you were writing about the deep state, you'd be writing about the United <laughs> yeah. States? Yeah, it's crazy. It's kind of sad. I, I used to, my old job, I used to have to go to the Philippines mm -hmm. a lot. And I probably went... 20 or so times and almost every single time there was some kind of event and a, a lot of them were weather events like a typhoon or something like that. But, um, you know, my, I think it was my last trip there. There was another one of the, uh, government coup attempts wow. and, uh, there was an assassination of, Oh, gosh, I can't remember who it was, but it was one of the high up government officials. And it was just crazy. It was, you know, it was very weird for me as in as a pretty mellow American who isn't very involved in politics, like seeing and and hearing about all of this stuff that is going on in this, you know, in this country and seeing you know our our buildings be put on lockdown as militants right. are going through the streets in armored vehicles and whatnot it was just insanity but you know and i know we're not anything like at that point right now but even saying the word coup in america is just so weird it's so weird it's 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 incredibly strange um i had been in Egypt, when the uprising in January 2011 began, I was there for the first four days of it. My wife made me come home. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And, <laughs> sure. Those four days. What's funny is she made me, 
she made me come home. It, there's a difference in, I think, the way she felt about me. She made me come home during the Egyptian uprising, but then um, I happened to be in Erbil, the, the, the Kurdish capital in, in northern Iraq, um, not long after the Islamic State overran Mosul, which is not that far from Erbil. Mm-hmm. And I called her and I said, hey, you know, do you want me to come home? She's like, no, finish out your trip. <laughs> but anyway, getting back to my, my, my point, um, I had been, you know, I had experienced these protests in, in Egypt in January 2011. And then I had experienced the protests in, in Turkey in June 2013, what's called the Gezi Park protests. And then, you know, the there have been marches and demonstrations here in Washington and around the country and at airports in the United States. And, you know, there was no tear gas and water cannon in in Washington or around the country and so on and so on. But there this sense of 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 anger and of taking matters into their own hands and and, and the empowerment of, of, of the crowd certainly had a, a familiar feeling to me having spent some time both in Tucker Square and in um, in, in Taksim Square in, in, in Istanbul. So again, you know, we think of ourselves as different from, from the world. Um, and we are, I mean, there's something special about the United States, but I think it's for the, the first time in my lifetime. I, I, I don't remember uh, President Nixon resigning. I have a vague recollection of of President Ford, um, but it's the first time in obviously my political consciousness that, as a a white American, um, I feel like I have to fight for the democratic institutions and and rights and liberties that may be at at risk. I think um, fellow African American. And Latino Americans have faced discrimination and, and, and have that fight every day for their rights and, and liberties that are endowed in the Constitution. But the, I think for the first time, the majority feels, or at least people who are quite concerned about what the Trump administration has done, feel that they, they, they have to do this as well and that we have to fight for the democratic institutions of the country and then improve them so that everybody feels that they're a part of them. And I think that there's some, there's certain parallels to the part of the world that I've made my life's work is that people really, and for them, it's, it's, it's different. They've never had it. They don't feel like there's something losing it, but that, but they also feel this very strong pull about liberty and personal freedoms and that they, they have to fight against forces that are overwhelming and the only way that they can do that is by by going into uh, by going into the stream. And the one of the things that I've been thinking about, and um, again, I'm like, if if you were, and I'm and I'm not going to put a cap on this and say what the highest number is, but let's say you're at level 100 in your political knowledge, then I'm like at level like four or five. So me juxtaposing no, on this stuff is is much different than than when you would discuss it. But I've been talking with people and thinking ahead to what happens in four years, and then what happens right. in four years after that. Like, is it going to be this seesaw battle of wanting to write this? Sh- I mean, 
there are people that when I say write the ship, they're thinking we're we're already writing it right now, right, you know. Right, and right, I get right, that. Forty three percent of the American yeah. public support the president. Yeah, right? um, but I mean, you know, looking ahead is. Is it in four years the Democrats are saying, okay, we can't let this happen again, and then they are storming the ballots and, you know, somebody else is coming in to basically do what Trump did and in a week, like, rip up everything that he okay. is doing? And then are we in a back and Just forth? or what Polarization. Is, kind of yeah. Right. You know... There's some good news and there's some bad news. I think the good news is that, at least in this early going, the 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 political institutions of the country are remain and are very clearly robust. The courts have told the administration that what they're trying to do in a variety of areas is blatantly illegal and have thrown out executive orders and said that they're not. And that's. That's very, very important. Even with the president's attacks on the judiciary, the judiciary remains impartial and um, faithful to upholding the, the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that's very important. Also, likewise, the press. Um, the press has been called by by the, both the president as an enemy of the people and uh, Steve Bannon as the opposition. And I think what you're seeing, and I think this is a good thing, that the press is losing its appetite for access journalism, which particularly in Washington has ruled the roost, is that you soften your stories in order to continue to have access. Mm -hmm. And that the administration's declaration of war on the press, I think the press is is finding itself again. Um, You know, people deride CNN. There's a reason why CNN has been attacked by this administration because it is actually doing pretty good work over the course of the last month or six weeks or so, whatever. And those things are things to, to, to be, to be hopeful about. The problem is I see it as a political scientist and as someone who works on the Middle East. And this again goes towards this book that, that I have coming out is that the ability of leaders to manipulate political institutions and bend them to their own political agenda or create new ones, discover new ones to solve the problems that they confront often outlive that moment when it's necessary for them. So that long after Donald Trump leaves the White House and we will be contending with the way in which the president and his administration have manipulated laws and rules and regulations of the country. It's hard to change those things. Those things evolve based on their, on the way in which they have been evolving over a period of time. So if you manipulate it to your own ends, it kind of sets things on a, on a, on a path, what political scientists will call path dependencies. That is the evolution of these things that I call institutions and others would call laws and rules and decrees and, and, and things. Although we don't rule by decree in this country, at least not yet are based on their previous iterations. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that they can, as I said, bend them, manipulate them, discover new ones, we could be talking about, you know, Democratic President X, but those institutions have already been, have already evolved in a certain way and will have an impact on the trajectory of the country. Now, to your question about the seesawing, the back and forth, we are in a period of political polarization. Right. 
Um, and just as President Trump came in and started signing executive orders that, you know, uh, are intended to undo the Obama policies and Obama legacy, um, one can imagine four years from now, a Democratic president trying to do the same thing. And this only kind of reinforces the polarization of the country, which is deeply, deeply concerning. Mm-hmm. So that was bad news. No, good news, bad news, and more bad news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not laying on the floor yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, it's, there was somebody who I will not name, who I know, who said they basically voted for Trump because they were, it was an anti-Hillary vote because they were sick of the politicians. They didn't feel like they could stomach another complete politician being in office and they wanted to give somebody else a shot at it. And, you know, I, I kind of would cringe when they said that. And my vision had always been in my mind of a kind of quick to anger, not so much thinking completely everything through person going through, uh, or even a teenager going through the white house and just pushing buttons and, Ooh, what does this do? And, Oh, look, I get to do all this stuff. And that's kind of what it's seemed like. This first part has been of, I'm going to do all this stuff and I'm going to, you know, not really think about what this may do. And I guess part of my fear is the things that he can potentially do or may still be preparing to do that are not going to be able to be shut down legally. You know, that's, that's one of my biggest fear points, I guess, in this whole thing. And I, I think you, you you hit on something that is extraordinarily important, which is that there is a sense that the president does not think through the consequences of his actions. And this goes right to what I was saying about the trajectory, the political trajectory of the country and the ability to manipulate the institutions, uh, the political institutions of the of the country um, and, and how they have an effect down the road. And I think that also comes to foreign policy, the fight with the, the unnecessary fight with the Mexicans, no less the, the Australians of all mm-hmm. people. I think the president doesn't doesn't think through the, the consequences and his team don't think through the consequences of it. I, I, clearly, they derive domestic political benefit from picking a fight with the Mexicans. But of course, you know, over the last 16 years, our relationship with Mexico has changed. Throughout George W. Bush's term, throughout President Obama's term, there's a kind of more respectful, equal tone in the relationship, recognizing that Mexico is this extraordinarily important trading partner and security partner. And now we're back to treating Mexico in this high-handed way. And there's a sense of this, you know, again, if you look at when Secretary of State Tillerson and the Secretary of Homeland Security Kelly were, were down there, this sense of, of of tension between the gringos who are coming here and telling us and treating us as less than them mm-hmm. is back. And it, it has real consequences. Um, the things that they're talking about are going to have negative consequences for the American economy. Things are going to be more expensive if they actually do the kinds of things that they do. Already, U.S. airlines are finding that 
traffic is down from Mexicans who want to go to other parts of the world because mm-hmm. people don't want to make transfers from, you know, they don't want to take United from Mexico City to Chicago and then have to transfer to a United flight to Paris or wherever because they don't want to have to deal with customs and border protection. And these are people who are going about their business. And so, uh, you know, American Airlines, United Airlines, Delta Airlines, whoever flies down there are losing business to Lufthansa, British Airways, Air France, and and whatever. Mm-hmm. Over nothing. I, I can't figure out what this is about, to be completely honest with you. We've had net my migration of Mexicans out of the country, out of the United States. Mm-hmm. We do... Uh, some extraordinary, I'm not an expert on, on Mexico, some extraordinary amount of trade with Mexico per day. It's an enormously successful relationship. Certainly there are problems, but again, as you say, there are consequences and you have someone who doesn't seem to have the temperament um, to think through things beyond uh, either what's going to work for him politically or what is emotionally important to him at that moment. And that is, that is absolutely frightening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, that also ties back into that whole situation with Bannon and, you know, how much rope are they giving Trump and who, you know, uh, I don't know. I, it's well, there is this question. There is this question whether 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 the president is being manipulated by someone like Steve Bannon. I, right. I don't know. I, I you know I've never been in the presence of of either of them, but I think we do ourselves a disservice by suggesting that the president is stupid. Right. Yeah. I think he's he's not curious about the world, but he's certainly not stupid. He's certainly a marketing genius. Yeah. And that I probably think about it more in terms of a of a partnership. But Bannon presents himself as this big intellectual. And I think that Trump may be attracted to that. Yeah. And Bannon's ideas are quite frightening because they are um, he describes himself as a Leninist in the sense that he wants to destroy the system and rebuild another one. That's a very kind of mm-hmm. Leninist thing to say. And he's, um, I, you know, people can whitewash it all they want. I use white specifically here. He's a white nationalist. Yeah. Um, people say, oh, he's not an anti-Semite. I, I, I think that he's a white nationalist. And then by definition, that makes you opposed to anybody other than white Christian males. Uh, right. He could say, you know, I heard a, a, an Orthodox Jewish journalist say, well, Steve Bannon, I know people who've worked with Steve Bannon who are also Orthodox Jews, and they say he's not an anti-Semite. He has helped create an environment where Jewish community centers are threatened daily, um, where Muslims fear coming into this country, even citizens or green card holders of this country, where Hispanics in this country fear a knock on the door at their home at night. This story about customs and border protection sending two agents from immigration onto to meet an airplane that had arrived in New York City from San Francisco and demanded that everybody produce their IDs is something that you see in a police state. They were looking for illegal immigrants. This is this is this environment that white nationalism creates. So I I, I think if Steve Bannon never said, I hate Jews and I hate Muslims, he still is an 
creates this this intellectual environment and this political environment that makes these things possible. Mm -hmm. And that, again, it's un-American, although we do have a long history of racial and ethnic and religious injustice in this country. But it's at least we've had positive myths to get over that. Right. And Bannon, in wanting to tear down the system, I'm afraid, wants to tear down those positive myths as well. Yeah. But don't slit your wrists. Yeah. Resist. Yeah. 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 America. This is where we sing like American songs. And I wish I had actually to tack on to this part of this. And maybe I'll have to like sit down and do this semi-professionally, but on New Year's Eve, my friend Josh and I, we were at a party with our families and whatever at a New Year's Eve party. And they, we brought karaoke and I pride myself in being able to do a fairly decent version of Neil Diamond. Nice. Uh, nice. My and, wife loves Neil Diamond. Oh, wow. Loves. Oh uh, my God. So we. He's the Jewish Elvis, you know? Yeah. Oh, big time. But we sang, sang America. And um, I kind of retitled it as we were going um, America and in the in parentheses, the wall. <laughs> and um, we were uh, I completely was rewriting the song as we were going. And um, oh instead of when you would normally sing today, right. I was singing the wall. Oh and, uh, I think part of this. Is the, the gallows humor will help us get through it. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Think, I do. I feel very strongly about that. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very sad and very scary, but you got to have things like SNL, I guess, too. Right. The rebirth of SNL. I mean, there are some good things about it besides the rebirth of SNL. I've never seen communities coming together in the way that they have the solidarity with, you know, uh, Hispanic, uh, Hispanics in this country, whether legally or not. Mm hmm. The solidarity between American Muslims and American Jews. Um, when you go to, when I've been to these large gatherings in Washington, you have people from all walks, absolutely all walks, coming together and saying, "This is this isn't this isn't what we want," and we are going to work very hard to prevent bad things from happening. How many Americans now know who their member of Congress is? They don't have to Google. That yeah. person. So there is a, re- a reawakening and a reengagement in politics where previously there had been generalized apathy. And I think those things are very good and very good for the country. But as you point out, when you're seeing um, um, America, I mean, Neil Diamond's ode to the greatness of this country, and then you put yeah. in the wall. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, but it's upsetting at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, we have definitely gone through a lot of this. We've we've laughed, we've cried, Stephen. I, 
It's been it's actually it's been great. Um, again, coming up on the the almost ninth anniversary of my father's death, it was really very helpful for me to talk about him with you. Um, I think uh, Tuesday is going to be just slightly easier as a result. So I appreciate the opportunity. Well, that's huge. Yeah, you're you're very welcome. Uh, so thank you again for taking time out on your Saturday morning and uh, possibly. Apologies to Brad if I delayed you guys at all. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. He'll, he'll get over it, I'm sure. Yeah. So do you want to throw out all of your social? I mean, I'll tell people that they can find you on Twitter at Stephen A. Cook, and that's with a V, not a PH. And the A is important because, as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of Stephen Cooks out there in the world. And um, there is a at Stephen Cook, who's a marketing guy in Atlanta, and he gets sort of annoyed when my followers right. tweeted him. So it's at Stephen A. Cook. My blog, which can be found at the Council on Foreign Relations website, CFR.org, is called From the Potomac to the Euphrates. And if anybody's interested, um, please look out for my, my new book. It's called False Dawn. Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. It's being brought out by Oxford University Press. The official publication date is June 1, but uh, feel free to pre-order at either Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or Oxford University Press itself. Um, I promise it's it's not a technical read. It's um, I try to tell the stories of the mid- contemporary Middle East through through stories and through my own experiences uh, there, just to give you a little preview, the prologue of the book um, starts out with me in Tahrir Square on the night of January 25th, 2011, the first night of the uprising against Hosni Mubarak. So, you know, knock on wood, it's a pretty good read and people will like it. Again, thank you uh, for being here. And No, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Okay, thanks, Stephen. Okay, that was a uh, good in-depth political conversation with myself and Stephen A. Cook. Most of the depth of the quote in-depth was coming from the other side of the microphone, which I am completely okay with. Um, You know, I like I said in the beginning of this, I am not a political prognosticator or genius. I am not extremely into it and have not devoured both sides of the press of what is going on right now. Um, I do still kind of giggle at the term fake news. And I, you know, think Alec Baldwin does an amazing job as Donald Trump. What, What can I say? So for those of you who did plug in and listen to this, thank you very much. I hope you got something out of it as well. And again, you can find Stephen at his Twitter, which is Stephen A. Cook, uh, Stephen with a V, and make sure you have the A in the middle there. And you can find links to his books that he has written, to his blog that he writes. So you can also find his podcast, The Amen Corner, similar to how you may have found the Daddy Unscripted podcast. So make sure you look out for that. You can find Daddy Unscripted on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, on Google Play. So tell people, even if you are an iPhone user, tell your friends who have Androids, they can listen too. I'm not excluding them. 
I may mock their phones here and there, but I'm not going to exclude them from listening to the podcast. So you can also find Daddy Unscripted on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, all as Daddy Unscripted. I know, pretty genius. And I can receive an email from you at daddyunscripted at gmail.com. So for those of you who want me to speak to specific people, whether it's yourself or your dad or your husband or whoever it may be, a celebrity, um, an athlete, I'm trying to continue to reach out to those people who are widely known and try to get some of those peppered in here as well. But you can send me a line at daddyunscripted at gmail. I love hearing from you guys. And obviously, Stephen A. Cook is another one of those guests that have come through the social media machine. And I love that. I love that I am not having to stick within my own bubble of people that I know. So uh, keep those suggestions coming to me so I can keep sending out my equipment to people and have them record with me. I've got a couple of setups out there with people around the United States that I'm trying to still set up to record with. So trying to make this a very good and big year for the podcast for myself and for all of you as well. So stay tuned for the next episode, which I can't really even tell you who that's going to be, but it will be out in a couple of weeks probably. So thanks again for listening and spreading the word around and hope to have something out for you guys soon. Thanks. Thanks.